everybody. Welcome to the Mobile Home Expert Podcast. I'm Jason Sorotin here with Mobile Home Park Expert Glenn Esterson. Glenn, how are you doing? I'm doing excellent. Thank you. So what we've been talking about uh, the last uh, two episodes has been kind of the basis of your book, the Mobile Home Park Manifesto. And today we're going to dive into what is chapter seven of the book. And we're going to touch on some top level things. We're not going to go all the way in to what the book does, but we're going to kind of touch on the top things. We're going to talk about variations of the mobile home park model. We're going to talk about RV parks, tiny home communities. Is it a fad or an actual shift? and campgrounds, so like annual leaseholds and daily guests. And what my goal is for everybody who's just tuning into this podcast is I am an investor. I am interested in the mobile home park space. Glenn happens to be a friend of mine, and I'm trying to learn everything I can. And hopefully through me and all of my dumb questions, you'll be able to get the answers you need to have a successful mobile home park. So Glenn, let's jump into it. Let's talk about just at the base, it says, what is MHP? So when somebody says MHP, what are they saying? Uh, well, mobile home, MHP stands for mobile home parks, you know, and, and we now kind of call them manufactured, you know, home communities. Uh, they used to be called trailer parks. So somewhere in that description should give you a pretty good idea of what MHP is. And the, the basis, as we've discussed before, behind mobile home parks and, and why they seem to be such a resilient investment is because the tenant owns their own mobile home and they put it in on a lot in your park that they lease for a, you know, a period of time. And so there's virtually you know no maintenance costs. Uh, when you don't own the home and, and you have a, you know, a park of, you know, 10 to a hundred or 500 inside of there, it's basically somebody leasing, you know, a hundred foot by, you know, 50 foot space or something like that on the, you know, dirt with infrastructure. And it makes it a pretty strong draw for, for investors lately because it's a very sticky tenant who stays there, you know, quite, you know, for a good period of time, often the rest of their lives. So that's the basic of what they are, and, and they've really become more than they ever have been. They started off way back, you know, way back in the, the mid-1900s or so, uh, really as kind of campgrounds and RV parks, um, you know, trailer coach parks and things like that. And, you know, over time, they became a, a reasonable way to live and for people who didn't quite have as much money. And, you know, they've evolved uh, you know, into these large communities and, you know, for a while, you know, maybe a little longer, uh, maybe up until kind of recently, you know, they, they've been fairly neglected and ignored for a good while. And a lot of them became what was known as, you know, a trailer park with a, you know, bad visual ass, you know, appeal to it. And nowadays they're becoming just beautiful parks with, with, with beautiful homes on there on large lots and nice landscaping, well-maintained roads and clubhouses. And they are an absolute way of life in many locations, especially in the Sun Belt and, and the Northeast has, has a tremendous amount of high quality um, mobile home parks, you know, manufactured home communities nowadays. What do you they, think? They, they actually you, have, yeah. go ahead. What, what do you think has caused that shift? Um, I, I think, you know, 
around the 70s, you know, in the late 60s, people kind of started rebelling against the system a bit more, you know, and, and parks became kind of a, a way to have the ability to move around the country and be, you know, a bit more nomadic now that the transportation infrastructure was more in place. And eventually people settled somewhere and uh, they, they were nice for a while. And then during the, the 80s, um, it became, you know, they started going downhill. I can't remember, you know, you know, the, the impetus for it, but it seemed as if, you know, around the 80s, it was almost all lot rent communities. And, and by, you know, the mid 90s or so, something something shifted and people started, you know, um, allocating homes on there for rent on their vacant lots. And uh, years later, it became almost impossible to sell those homes anymore. Uh, and, you know, people were getting stuck with a lot of inventory on their lots and no way to sell it. And, because they, uh, because they depreciate, right? Yeah. You know, they get older over time and they, they definitely show their age quicker than a house will. Um, and, you know, if you don't, you know, invest in these homes on a regular basis to, to keep them looking nice, they, they, they lose their appeal pretty quick. And when you start as an owner owning a uh, you know a lot of these homes, sometimes it's difficult to manage the amount of maintenance. They start to kind of fall down, and trying to sell a, a you know a home that's you know in shambles kind of is a slippery slope. That means you're probably going to get a tenant who doesn't mind living in shambles, and before you know it, you have kind of a degraded park. Um, but uh, you know the, the, some regulations came out in the 2000s and then the you know some some stronger regulations came out in, in you know after the recession it made it virtually impossible for a park owner to be able to sell a home on a lease purchase option which is you know how they are traditionally done and you know most guys living in, in, in a mobile home park aren't going to have 10 15 20 thousand dollars in cash to buy the home so it has to be financed, and uh, they, they created some rules that made it very difficult to, to do that for a long time. Uh, they're starting to get reversed now, um, and people are taking more chances now than they used to with uh, with doing it. So we're seeing, you know, again, a new kind of pattern starting of reverting back to, you know, land lease communities as as being the the, the you know the, the ultimate goal and reducing you know the inventory. To where it's all tenant owned and therefore reducing the expenses and it makes it for a very viable investment option at that point so we've kind of come full circle on where they started to where they are now um but the appeal now is that they're still one of the highest performing investments in the real estate market um especially if you're a long-term cash flow type of guy if you're a uh, you know flip and fix you know fix and flip type of guy a lot of that's being done too but um you know the the real money's in the long term hold of these because these these parks have uh, you know quite the cash flow that grows every year and very low operating expenses. Um, and, and you would agree. You would agree that this is almost recession resistant, right? This so in terms of investments goes. Uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I would never call it recession proof because you know I definitely had some struggles during the the past recession with the park that I owned, um, but. Given you know, given a, a mild recession, these definitely handle better. And even mine that I own in a deep recession, um, in a tertiary market with some major complications with the city and the county, 
Um, I still managed to stay pretty full, and my, my income was, was there uh, and, and fairly stable. Um, but I wasn't able to really grow my rents and things like that during the, you know, during the downtime. And I lost some people that moved from the tertiary market into a secondary market for work. And, you know, they, but I filled them up pretty quickly. But of course I had to, you know, throw a couple thousand dollars in each of them to, you know, to turn them around again. Yeah, um, gotcha. So, it's not, was, so I wouldn't call it recession proof. And, and boy, if we get another humdinger of a recession, who knows? It's all up for grabs. But <laughs> right. There's nothing are, solid ever. You know, there's always right, risk but, involved. But they are more resilient than most. And if it wasn't for the lack of financing in this industry, it would be, I think, a considerably stronger asset class uh, for investors what, as well. Can you can you um, can you explain that a little bit? What are you saying that banks aren't as willing to give out money or loan money to MHP? Yeah, parts? that's that's the basics of it. You know, uh, we talk about it again in, in in a later chapter, but you know, banks barely want to loan on these mobile home parks and they just started again in the last two years. And, and there's always been a few banks that always would and things like that, but they put them under much more scrutiny. Um, and if they, and if you own the homes in the park, it's even that much harder to get financed. And your typical mom and pop that, you know, is owned for 40 or 50 years probably doesn't have the world's greatest books and records. So they have a very hard time being able to evaluate um, a park and then get comfortable that the loan they're going to provide on it is going to be able to get, you know, repaid back on, you know, in full and on time. Um, even though, you know, everybody knows these things make money, the books and records typically will show that it doesn't make, you know, a lot of owners, you know, put all of their expenses in there and it makes it look like there's not much money. And if it's a cash deal, a lot of owners used to put money, you know, cash money in one pocket and, and money orders and checks into the bank. So the income would look low. And, you know, it's, uh, it's going from a mom and pop business to a sophisticated business makes it real hard for a bank to want to get involved if all the I's aren't dotted and T's and, you know, aren't crossed. And um, we're seeing more banks get involved now than before, but there's still so many hoops to jump through, you know, and of all the deals I sold, you know, in the last few years, I would say, you know, less than 30 35 percent somewhere in that number were financed by a bank um you know it's it's often easier to refi after you've had it a couple of years and, and built good books and records yeah uh, but as an issue as, as an initial acquisition you know two-thirds of the time they're done cash well sin and uh, since the last recession i mean every business even if you're doing you know five ten million dollars a year getting a line of credit is still incredibly difficult and you have to personally guarantee it. So it's just, yeah. it's way easier to go to private equity sometimes that I think this is a good transition. Can we talk a little bit about the variations in the MHP model and like, yeah. are there tons of them? Is it really complicated or is it, is it simple in terms pretty of simple, understanding? Pretty straightforward. You know, I mean, the, the basic concept is land lease. That's the basic concept, right? Whether it's for a day, week, you know, month or year, uh, it, it's a land lease. And that's, that, that's the, 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 the model behind mobile home parks. And so what we've seen that, you know, go to, and actually they come, as I started to say, you know, they kind of came from trailer, you know, from travel trailer courts, you know, good old fashioned RV parks from the 1920s and thirties when they kind of got a kickstart. And that was really the model that developed into a, a mobile home model. Now we're seeing an explosion of RV parks again. And, you know, uh, uh, motorhomes are, are just the sales behind motorhomes right now are just through the roof. 
and uh, uh, it's it's very impressive, growing at a much faster rate than, than mobile home parks are, uh, understandably, because you know they don't give the, the zoning out too freely with uh, mobile home parks. So RV parks are, 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 are a huge segment of the business. It's a some are nice and easy to operate. Some are a straight up business that you have to operate daily. Yeah, um, they are. You know the. The, the kind that I personally am the big fan of is, is a mobile home park that gives maybe 20% of its park as an RV if it lends itself in location and whatnot. And I think that's a great extra, you know, spread on your income. Um, especially, you know, with uh, mobile home parks on septic, you can often, not always, but often, uh, if you have a three bedroom septic on your, you know, on your, uh, on your mobile home lot, you can often divide that lot up into two or three lots and use that same septic because the RV is considered one bedroom. So you kind of triple your rents, um, you know, there. And if you're in an area where there's a lot of contractors working that's staying for, you know, three, six, nine months, it tends to be a great thing. The guys that are doing the, the daily, weekly stuff, like uh, where it's all over the Southwest and 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 the, and the coastlines and you know all the fancy, nice, beautiful places to go travel, that's a totally that's a, that's a business, and you know it, there's you know a lot more to it. Um, but the premise is the same: they're leasing out the dirt and they're getting a fee for the dirt. Yeah, uh, you know, and often often they're selling goods as well, you know, at a store and you know getting things for the campers that are staying there. But um, they tend to be uh, a, a very high quality asset that uh, you know seems to be for the last few years, anyways. The, the rent rolls and the P and Ls that we've been tracking have all been growing, and um, you know people even still go camping during recession. That was another kind of thing that that happened during the last recession. Camping really ticked up, and I think that's kind of you know what the new inspiration has been with this, you know, this RV explosion in this last decade. Yeah. Um, you, and there's, there's some great high quality parks that, you know, you can you know, uh, rent the space for, for the entire year and you pay a flat fee and you use it when you use it. Um, you know, and there's some that have permanent homes that are on some of these RV parks and, and you know, it's a very interesting model. And I'm, I'm a big fan. And I think as, uh, as things continue, we'll, we'll probably see a lot more people entering that market as well. Although it is a much smaller segment than the mobile homes segment is, if, if you can understand that. Yeah, you've mentioned RV parks a lot. And on a side note, the idea of driving in a large, giant vehicle down the highway with my whole family makes me physically ill. But I understand that there are a lot of people who like to do it. Do, do you think that RV parks are a better investment now than mobile home parks or should it be something that's like tied together? Well, I don't know that one's better than the other. I think a better operator that is a, you know, more efficient in, a, in an RV park versus a, a strong operator in MHP park would, would probably argue that theirs is better. I would say from a yield standpoint, location dependent, the yields do seem to be similar um, with both asset classes. And if you're a guy that can handle the daily operation of a, you know, of, a, of, of an RV park, um, it might be a great fit for you. If you're a guy that just wants coupon money in the mail, uh, MHP would probably be a, you know, a smarter option for you. Um, what makes the RV so park it, harder? You know, in, in that well, sense, it sounds a little... Side. It's the business side of the thing, you know, and you have to staff it. It's more marketing, right? 
Yeah, and you got to get you know got to get people to your to your spot and all that kind of stuff. Whereas, um, and you have to offer usually more amenities than a mobile home park has to offer as well to get people to stay at your spot. And you have you know more employees, and you have to deal with people staying for the weekend and. You know, others staying for a week and some staying for just, you know, like rented for a month, but be in and out of the place. So, you know, there's just more moving parts to it. I don't know that it's necessarily something that isn't solvable pretty easily with the right management team. Uh, but it is a different aspect than a mobile home park where you only need, you know, for a small park, really a couple guys, you know, a guy, a guy or two to help with the maintenance, a, a person to help with the management of the tenants and, and the owner of the park. I mean, it's really, you know, pretty low key and easy and it's, you know, all money in, you know, between the first and the 10th of the month usually. And uh, it's, you know, probably easier accounting on some level as well. On a, on a, sl- on a slight backtrack, Glenn, when we're talking about the variations, right? I imagine an RV park has to have, you want it to be really well maintained because you're driving people there because of the physical beauty in a lot of cases would be my, my yeah. assumption. But in a mobile home park, are typically the tenants in charge of taking care of the, the their own yards? Or is that something handled by the... Um, the the mobile home park owner. So it, it, it's both. You know, there's you know kind of three options really available. You make your tenants mow everything, okay, and they they you know they're responsible for their pad and and maintaining it. But good luck trying to organize them to do it on the same day of the week. Um, and uh, you know the the other option is the the, the owner does it all. Uh, and just, you know, charging it, just builds it into his rents and, and he takes care of it with a third party company or himself. Um, and then, you know, there's, you know, I guess other kind of, you know, variances of the option, not really a third option, Gotcha. but, you know, you know, often it's, you know, tenants do their houses and the landlord does all the vacant houses and the vacant areas and the common areas and things like that. And, Sounds like it'd be um, easier just to put that in the rent. I would think so. I used to try and mow my, you know, my, my park and it was, and it was huge, but it was a few acres, six acres or something like that. And a lot of green space in there. And, you know, man, the grass grows fast in Tennessee. And, uh, you know, I was out there, you know, at least once a week, I, I was mowing the grass once every other week. And by the time I'd get back to it, it was, you know, six inches high and, you know, it, it was real pain. And who wants uh, that? Then, you got bigger things to focus to on. That, you know? Right. Yeah. yeah That's I not where I would s- take the whole day, right. take the whole day with the weed whacking. And I was like, Oh, well, I'll have, you know, Johnny and number two or whoever, um, you know, mow, you know, mow lots and, and work it off of his rent. And that was fine, but it was always very, you know, sporadic. I hate trade yeah. deals. I've never have good luck with trade deals. If we want to trade, let's trade cash. Because cash yeah. gets people to do shit, so I mean, I, th- I yeah. think that that's the way to go. Now we we so we talked yeah. about some of the variations, but there's a, there's there's been a thing for I would say the last three or four years. In fact, I've had a couple of my employees take part in the tiny house mu- movement, and now there's oh, these yeah. tiny house communities, and like They're you know, up everywhere. a family yeah. of four living in 420 square feet. That's almost as bad <laughs> as an RV trip, in my opinion. But I, th- yeah. there is a big conservation model, and you know, in America now, 
it's hard to have uh, to support a family on just one income. So the tiny houses have a uh, have a big appeal. Can you talk about how ti- the tiny home communities and tiny houses in general, what you think is happening currently, and what you think the future holds for them? Sure, sure. I mean, it's so. Years ago, long before people were calling them tiny homes, we used to build little tiny houses all over Appalachia. And, you know, we, we would, you know, go and, and scrap wood from a barn and we'd go slap up a cabin. And, you know, for $1,000, $2,000, we would have, you know, a nice little, you know, 400 square foot cabin built. Um, and they'd be cute and quaint, but, you know, you wouldn't want to spend too long there. Um, you know, I actually lived in one for almost a year, you know, one that we built. And, it was, it was, it was interesting. I had, you know, my kids with me, you know, part-time at the time and, um, you know, they, they seemed to enjoy it, but there was definitely no frills, you know, no frills. It was, but it was mountain camping and it was enjoyable. Um, but now, now, you know, people, you know, have, have a hard time affording a, you know, good spot. And it's understandable that this would eventually come to surface that these tiny home communities come up. And the problem my problem, I don't mean problem, but my concern and often a lot of people's concern is these homes aren't built with any regulations. They're just kind of like what I did, you know, you just slap them together. Um, and, and, you know, the, the cost of them seems to be a little excessive for some of the ones that I've seen. Uh, although I'm sure there's plenty of affordable, reasonable models out there. Um, but to, 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 to own a home that you're going to spend 20, 30, 40, even a hundred grand I've seen tiny homes selling for that isn't built to any kind of codes, you know, means it's going to be much harder for you to insure it. You know, uh, you don't own the land under it, but how are you ever going to move it? And, um, you know, to me, it seems like the model still hasn't been totally figured out because as you pointed out, um, and, and as I experienced living in one of those things with a family, you know, home kids and all that stuff, it can get a little cramped. Um, if you're a single person, you know, or maybe a couple, you know, it might be a nice short-term place to live in, you know, or, or, or settle in if that's all you need. But I have a feeling um, somebody's going to figure out how to make the model successful and people are going to replicate it. But I think there's going to be a lot of people trying this out and losing um, from an investment standpoint at first. Well, can I, can I pitch? So let me pitch you an idea that I had and you tell me if it's shitty or not. So, um, I was thinking about it with a developer friend of mine building an in-town community, like in Atlanta that had, um, community bathrooms and really nice maintained, uh, garden area and all of that. But it was meant for more of like the new age hippie. Is that market sustainable, or is that part of the fad that you're concerned about? That's that's kind of the fad because, you know, it, it, once you stay in a place for you know a year, if you're you know living in a in a house for one year that's 400 square feet, if you if you aren't already motivated to to have a slightly larger space and that's a perfectly content thing for you, fine. But I think after living in a small space for a year. I wasn't so content with it anymore. I, I really want, I needed something bigger than that. And, and, you know, not because of excess, but because it just wasn't practical. We were on top of each other for too long in, in what I was living in. And so I think it, it's, you'd be able to help short-term people find a place to settle 
and then they're on their way out as soon as they can be on their way out is, is kind of what I think most and in thinking that it's going to be fun and sexy are going to be a little disappointed after a, a bit of time. Um, although, you know, in heavily dense places where land's just so expensive, it might be a perfectly reasonable option. And I guess it's going to have to be metro dependent. Um, and, and, you know, because to buy a tiny home for $50,000 Geez, that's a nice down payment, you know. You know, they, even if you have only five thousand dollars to put down on that thing, they finance it for you. You can put that down on a mobile home, have a lot more space, and have essentially the same experience uh, for about the same cost. You know. Yes. So, so in just a gut, you know, if if I gut checked you and I said, dig it, meaning keep it or dump it as an investment. Do you think that people should be investing in this, or is this something that people should be watching and then making really educated decisions about? So dig it or dump it. Yeah, I would say I would say if you're new to the business, definitely not not look at that as the as the low hanging fruit right out the gate. That's something I think you build your to- your risk tolerance up to, and you build your experience up to. But I'm pretty confident there's going to be a lot of winners in this business, but probably a lot more losers in the beginning. And I wouldn't invest in it at this point in time in 99% of the uh, deals that I've seen out there that are that are tiny homes. But uh, there are a few. I mean, there's, there's one right outside of Atlanta that's real nice. I forget the name of it. Uh, I think it's in Macon that they're putting one in. And, you know, it, it, the demographic might be right there. But at the same time, I just sold a park in, in Macon that you could have bought a home in that, in that mobile home park, uh, you know, for a couple thousand dollars and paid $200 a month, $250 a month in lot rent day. And that's with the new owner going in and, and making the park look livable again. Wow. You know, that's so, crazy. That, you know, I mean, that, you, that's you a good live, deal. Yeah. <laughs> that's way better <laughs> than know? a tiny house. And it, but it, you know, a lot of people do have that stigma, tiny house versus trailer in their opinion. And I think yep. that's, the job of the community at large to change that perception. It's not something that's going to happen very quickly. So let's move on from, from the, the tiny homes and let's talk about something that I think is really cool. And you've mentioned numerous times, which are campgrounds, um, annual leaseholds and daily guests. Can you talk a little bit about that? I like campgrounds. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I'm a big fan of campgrounds. Now I don't sell too many campgrounds. I don't I don't think I've sold any in the last forever, you know, so, uh, but I've evaluated a bunch and I've been to a whole bunch of them right now, you know, over the last, you know, X amount of years anyways. And, and I really like that model. Uh, but it is, you know, it is a better investment. I think for a guy who wants to be at that campground a lot, uh, and not really as a business, although the business model seems pretty good, but the yields are definitely, harder to understand and it's so many moving parts with campgrounds because you got tent sites you got cabins you got rvs you got a store you have rentals for like uh you know if you're on the lake you got boat rentals you got activity fees and things kayaks like that. You know, paddle bo- stand up paddle boards some, all that stuff yeah you know and I, but i've been to some excellent campgrounds in the northeast that you know really made for such a fantastic time at a low cost that, that I really enjoyed them. And I, I was talking to the owner there, what they did was they had sectioned off um, about uh, half, maybe, uh, you know, a little less than a half of their area for permanent, you know, mobile home RV tenants who pay 
it was like $10,000 a year all at once in January to reserve that spot. And they leave their house there. And it's like a blue collar vacation spot. They had giant pools and water slides and all this fun stuff for the kids to do. And those guys get to come in and out as they please. And, you know, we, you know, we spent the weekend there with our camper and man, my kids loved it. I loved it. And, you know, I think those type of models are great. And with camping, um, it's really come back alive again over this last 10, 20 years. I mean, it's, uh, people are doing it every day and it's, it's, it's because everybody's people want to take through. their kids out cause they don't want them on tech. And that's a great yep. way to remove yourself from the tech. Yep. You know, what I mean, what are the yields uh, like on the campgrounds? Are they comparable to the RV parks or the? Yeah, they're comparable. They, they you know, your, your day one yields are going to be sub ten percent, but you know, by your year two or three, you know, kind of yields, you're probably looking at somewhere in that you know mid teens, upper teens kind of area. What causes um, that shift and, in yields? Is it just getting the properties up to par? Yeah, it's really it, a lot of them have been aged. So, like, I was recently trying to sell one in Tennessee. Um, it was in in western the western side of Tennessee, and it was a beautiful park. I mean, it, it was a really beautiful park in a, in a really sleepy kind of area, but it had a destinational type of lake there that people came to. Um, and it, it's you know, it, and then there was another one in North Carolina that was very similar, really surreal just pretty everything but aged you know and you can tell that the new guy coming in um is gonna have to you know redo the streets and uh you know clean up the docks and you know things like that and you know put in some you know updated pedestals for the rv spaces and you know general general upgrading things that you know just get left by the wayside when you go into park too long and you don't you know you don't operate it it maybe is as aggressively as you used to and so so when you start increasing that and you start adding value to the park you're going to start charging a little bit more in your rent maybe you run some more you know aggressive uh, advertising and you pick up the pace over there a little bit you start you know seeing that rent growth and um the the, the challenge with a lot of these older parks buying them it's, it's you're taking a leap of faith with a lot of these mom and pops because the books and records man i looked at one part it had a 2000 page handwritten ledger going back to day one but not a bit of anything on a computer thing you know so trying to evaluate the deal uh is a significant commitment of time um to see if it even makes sense and you have to trust that the handwritten material isn't a lie you know so right um yep. You know what I mean? So it becomes becomes a challenge, but I, I think it's a great model to invest in, not for the novice, but I, I could see me one day owning a campground as like a retirement thing because it just it looks like such a good model. Um, and when done well, you know, we've seen returns, you know, north of 20 percent with owners, you know, pretty consistently. And that's, you know. That's lovely. It's nice to have. If, if to to wrap up today, Glenn, if you could say, what is the best model for a first time investor in this space to follow? What would you say, just right off the bat? That's a great question, and I, and I like that question. I would hands down say, man, follow the book on the first deal. Don't try to get rich. And if it was me, I would be looking at a, a secondary. Uh, or, or maybe primary, but probably secondary market with strong MSA and strong demographic growth. And um, what's an MSA? Looking, 
an MSA, like a, a metro statistical area. So like when you say, when you, when you, when somebody says I want to go to, to Atlanta, they're actually, you know, they might be referring to downtown, but uh, the MSA would be the, however many 15 counties that are included in, in, in the Atlanta area. Gotcha. Okay? Gotcha. Uh, and so, you know, the whole country is made up of these MSAs. Um, but I would say, you know, a strong secondary market, uh, a, a not a value add type deal, something that's pretty stabilized, that doesn't have a lot of deferred maintenance, and, and I'm, I would be willing to pay uh, an extra bit, if you know, for the park if it had good books and records and everything was clean and orderly, and I could trust what I'm buying, and know that I'm going to get a smaller return for this park on my first deal as I learn the ropes. And, you know, do the easy stuff first, like learning how to fill an occupied lot if they have a couple vacant lots. Um, and, you know, learning how to navigate a rent increase without offending your tenants. The simple little things. And if you're bad at it, at least you know you have a good part that you'll be able to get out of uh, for, you know, hopefully more than you paid for it. Right. Um, but it's worth base for at least what you paid for it uh, because it's a solid deal. Whereas some of these really heavy value-add deals that we sell, I would not recommend them um, to, for a first-time guy because it's too heavy of a lift. And, you know, that's like that's how these You don't want to cut your teeth on that. Yeah, you know, I don't think so. I you wouldn't. Cut your teeth on something small and easy, just like going to college before you go to graduate school or before you go to doctorate school. And, you know, you, you kind of work your way up the ladder becoming, you know, better at and understanding the business. A lot of people don't um, understand that in business in general, that, you know, it's not about it, it. It really, business is a marathon. It is not a sprint. And when you sprint, a lot of times you make huge mistakes and don't think things through and you lose. So yeah, Glenn, thank you. Heavy value add, yeah. They require a lot of capital. And if you don't budget correctly and it's your first deal and you won't budget correctly, most likely on a heavy value add, you're going to be, you know, you're quickly going to be on that slippery slope going, Oh, Oh, how do I get out of this thing? You know, and which that, is the worst place you want to be <laughs> that you yeah. don't want to be there. Glenn, thank no. you so much. Today was super helpful. If people want to get a hold of you, they can go to your website, which is the mhpexpert.com, and then you can contact Glenn directly. And it's G Esterson, that's G E S T E R S O N, at the mhpexpert.com. And you can call Glenn. He's great to talk to on the phone. He'll give you his time. His number is 423 483. 0492. I'm Jason Sroten for Glenn Esterson. Thank you for joining the podcast. Glenn, thank you so much for your time. As always, Jason, it's been a pleasure. Thank you.